This episode of Dear Culture is brought to you by Ford. Introducing Ford's lineup of electrified vehicles featuring the fully electric 2021 Mustang Mach-E and the F-150 Lightning truck available spring 2022. The Escape SE plug-in hybrid and the Maverick truck available fall 2021. Ford's options include hybrid standard, all-electric, and plug-in hybrids. Other available features include plug-in electric power outlets, a Sync 3 system, Ford Copilot 360 Assist, and advanced technology to keep you connected. Ford also offers you the largest public charging network in North America, with simple and easy access to the Blue Oval Charge Network, the largest public charging network in North America offered by automotive manufacturers. Tap into the electric revolution by heading to Ford.com for more information. Built Ford Proud. Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director here at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, who's telling the stories of our children? So, Shauna, we're going to talk all about children, literature, um, and just our childhoods. But before we get into this week's episode, please tell me what is on your mind this week. Um, well, a little bit of good news. Uh, if you guys have been longtime listeners, you know I've been trying to get the heck out of New York City for a while now. Um, and I got the apartment. Burr, 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 burr. Uh, <laughs> so I will be moving back to Atlanta in December. Um, I'm super excited. Uh, there's def- this is definitely a, a different journey for me. Um, I mean, the first time I lived in Atlanta was, you know, for college. And then I stayed a little bit after college and left uh, nine years ago, always with the intention of I'm going to move back to Atlanta. Like, I, it's so weird. My <laughs> friends and family who are in New York who know me, you know, being born and bred in New York, and they're like, you haven't been a New Yorker for a really long time. Um, the pandemic, the pandemic made that abundantly clear. Like I've had to get on the subway, I think three times in the last like month because of, you know, dental appointments and such. And I'm just like, what in the ghetto is this? Like, I'm not, (laughs) I'm just, I'm not interested. I was like, I I hate this. I hate that I can't park. I hate that I got to travel all these places. Like it's whatever. Um, but I am super excited. You know, the, the only thing that was really, I tell everyone, the only thing that was really tying me here to New York were my parents. Uh, so that's going to be a huge adjustment. You know, I see them every day. I, those, those are my peoples, right? I love them. Um, but I also recognize like, yeah, I got to go live my own life. <laughs> uh, the vast majority of my friends are in Atlanta. My line sisters, um, my boo is in Atlanta. Uh, so <laughs> so it just it it just seemed like the the plausible next step. Um and but I will be in New York at least for like the first 6 months. I'm coming back like every 4 to 6 weeks because my dad is not a fan. Um he, he is he is very upset that I'm leaving. Um but you know, I'm I'm just really excited for it and I don't know, man. I, I think that there's, it's just on to bigger and better. And I'm really, really excited. Uh, and heck, I can get all my Spelman now, you know. 
Um, <laughs> Cause I'll be right down the street. Uh, so yeah, I'm just I'm, right. Cause I'm, those, those shipping costs are terrible. You know, right. So, <laughs> so I'm just, it. it's, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm also really looking forward to having a dishwasher again. Like, my goodness, just just the little things. things, just little mm. things. I was like, I I can't wait. Um, and but the only thing that I will say is, uh, now you know my the rent that I'm paying here it will not be the rent that I'm paying in Atlanta. It actually has almost doubled, um, <laughs> which is crazy when I think of it. Uh, but you know, and just very adulty things. Uh, but I I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> what about you? Jay? You know I'm side eyeing you, Shauna, because some of us live in DC <laughs> and we're paying way more than what you're going to pay in Atlanta. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but I feel you. I am uh, one. Congratulations! I'm so happy for you. I know this is something thank that you really you. wanted to do. And as somebody who also lived in that uh, in New York my entire life and decided to take that leap of faith to move, I can tell you that. It's going to be one of the best decisions you will make for yourself at this juncture in your life. And I, I look forward to, to hearing all about uh, the the escapades are going to happen in, in the life of Shauna in Atlanta. So I'm very happy for you. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> and uh, for our listeners, those of you who watch me on YouTube, all of this, this background over here is going to change. All right. I'm going to find something fly. We're going to see what happens. <laughs> New home studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also have a, a personal uh, update. Uh, mine is about my health. So for a few weeks, I have been having this weird uh, ringing in my ear and I couldn't really, uh, it felt clogged. You know, you, you're swimming in the pool and you come out the water and your ears feel clogged. And so it happened for a few days, like I would say a week actually, and then it went away. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, many of us do, especially as black men, you know, we go, oh, I don't feel it anymore. Let me uh, just keep soldiering on and it when it came back and then I got scared and I was like uh oh what if like I'm going deaf like what what is going on and so I just figured perhaps it's just like build up uh wax in my ears and because I apparently I was the only person in the world who didn't know that q-tips push wax in your ear like further <laughs> down your ear so I'm like, oh, you shouldn't do that? And everyone's like, no. I think even you, Sean, I think you might have told me that earlier. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a thing. Okay. And so I made an appointment to an ENT doctor, which is ear, nasal, throat doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and shout out to DC Healthcare because these offices are amazing. Um, I go to the doctor and uh, not only did they find out that it's not, there's no wax in my ears, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did find that I, one, I had a deviated, I have a deviated septum. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that is fairly common. A lot of people have it. They say like majority of people are born with, with it or have this issue. And uh, apparently I was born with it. She asked me if I had an injury. I was like, nope, never had a nose injury. And mm-hmm. so I had to get a procedure to like fix that because like it can help my breathing better. It can help me sleep better, mm-hmm. uh, which had nothing to do with why I was there. And it ended up being like inflammation in, in like my ear. And because of the deviated septum, there might be some inflammation here. And mm-hmm. I also should go to the dentist. So they, they're like, you know, go to the dentist and see what they say. I had already made an appointment for that before this, uh, this uh, appointment with this doctor. So I'm just in this process of like getting back on top of my health because the pandemic, obviously many people felt like 
it's a pandemic. I don't need to be in the hospital because you can catch COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people have put health their their health visits, their doctor visits, um, to the they put it in the back burner. And you know, it's still COVID's still here, but you still have to be on top of your health. And so I'm here to tell um, black people, especially black men, especially you know, listen to your body. Don't put things off because God forbid I went to this doctor and they told me that I was like going deaf because I didn't go to the doctor. And Mm -hmm. I had not been to the doctor in years, by the way. I I, kind of buried the lead there. Like I had not been to a doctor in years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I think that it's important to eliminate the shame around, you know, the doctor and like the fear around doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm here to say, look, I might look like somebody who's very healthy, Clearly, I'm not 100% healthy. I need to be going to the doctor regularly, and so should mm-hmm. you, um, because it's really important. Because if we want to see our black men live past 40 and 50 and 60 years old, because we're seeing our black men uh, die way too soon, and your health is everything. Like your body, how, how you treat your body, um, it impacts your duration on this earth. And so I plan mm-hmm. to live as long as possible. Uh, so I'm going, I'll be going to the doctor from now on regularly. Um, and so I'm proud of myself, <laughs> uh, but that's what's going on for me in my life. Well, Jaren, I am also incredibly proud of you. Uh, and I think it just serves as a reminder for us all. Like we need to be taking our health very, very seriously. You never know, you know, something that's small that you could nip in the bud immediately and then it turns into something bigger. So uh, shout out to you, G, for, you know, getting being, being the captain <laughs> of your own health journey. I'm really, I'm incredibly proud of you, but yeah, you know, let's, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about some, some children's books. I'm excited. <laughs> so Shauna, in preparation for this week's episode, I was thinking about my childhood and like my favorite children's books. And it occurred to me that I really don't have any like I do remember reading Dr. Seuss. I remember uh, one of my favorite books was uh, Good Night Moon. Um, and but then like something happened. I was kind of was I there was like this this like dormant years in my childhood where apparently I wasn't reading books. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I started. I was like really into books as a teenager. I, I was like reading books that my thirteen year old brain really could not fully fathom. Like I was reading like Native Son and mm-hmm. and um Maya Angelos uh I know why a cage bird sings. And and it was you know that book was a little heavy for a 13 year old. And but I do remember like really vivid memories of like enjoying my mom read a book to me before mm-hmm. bed. And there was something about uh the cadence of her voice when she would read the book. It just soothed me and I would just like, mom, can you please read a book for me? And then she would do it. And then at some point she kind of stopped. And I, I just assume now as an adult and realizing how challenging it is to raise children mm-hmm. that she was likely just tired. And, you know, she just wanted me to go to bed because she was <laughs> uh, she was new into she was uh, in her early years as a police officer working for New York, New York Police Department. And um, she worked crazy shifts. Most uh, rookie cops do. Um, and so I believe that played a role in it. Um, but yeah, like I just, but then like, I didn't really get into children's books, I guess. I mean, I do remember I had all the Dr. Seuss books. 
like literally everyone. And I did less reading and more like observing like the colors of the books and uh, the the illustration because mm-hmm. I was a drawer. I was a I was an artist. I still I am an artiste, and so <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was a very creative child, and so I was like very into the the imagery. And then as I got a little older, I got into comic books, and I would draw comic books. I would write the I would like kind of write the script, if you will. And so I, I, I was into it, but it, it was really my teenage years where I was really a reader. I did notice that girls in my class, like, the, like they read a lot. The boys in school, like, it was never, like, I guess, cool for boys to read. And the girls were, like, very encouraged uh, or, or I don't know what I don't know. The, I don't know what made the difference because I wasn't like your typical black boy either. Like I wasn't into sports like the like the guys and all that. Um, but I also wasn't like reading that much. Thank God I ended up did getting into reading. I ended up being an English major. So, but yeah, I think reading is really, as they say, fundamental. And now I have friends and family, I mean, and family members who are having families of their own and they have young kids. And I've been kind of reintroduced to the power of books and how these are like the first things that children are introduced to about the world, about the ABCs, about numbers. That's how they learn. And um, it's so important to introduce children at a very young age to read because one, you know, like uh, there are people who have gotten degrees and and as an editor, I know that the smartest people can sometimes be terrible writers and have terrible Ooh. punctuation and <laughs> terrible spelling. Um, and so it starts early. And so mm. I really think it's important uh, that we expose our children to all kinds of books but especially books that are diverse. Um, and mm-hmm. that's something I think that we, our generation, didn't have enough of when we were children. But Shauna, how was it for you growing up? Did you read a lot of children's books? And if so, what were your favorite books? Well, gee, you know what's so funny is my like childhood was completely different in terms of Oh no, we were a reading family. Um, my mom, my mom says that she, because her and my dad like used to read to me in the womb. So when I came out, like you know, even I think up until maybe like one or two, like my mother was just reading to me every single night. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I, according to my mother, I could read at like 13, 14 months, like <laughs> which is weird. So, and my mom and dad were, uh, they really just like honed in on the whole idea of knowing how to read, enjoying reading. So I would see my dad, you know, every single morning he's buying a newspaper and he's just thumbing through, you know, my mom is over here. She'd say some words. I'm like, what does that mean? She goes, look in the dictionary, you know, all of these things. And really just, um, uh, just just instilling that kind of love and joy for reading uh, into me. And I remember there were a bunch, 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 bunch of these like little books that you see of like, oh, you know, so-and-so was misbehaving. And, you know, and they hear these life lessons that you're supposed to learn from this 14-page book. Uh, one of my favorite things and I, I, I honestly can't wait to have kids because I'm hoping that they still do this. And I want to be able to see my kid enjoy this as well. The Scholastic Book Fair. Now, for y'all who don't know, let me tell you something. The Scholastic Book Fair, first off, was how you knew low-key who had money. Now, <laughs> and the reason why is because they would send you home with these like 
it's like sheet paper. It's it's so thin. It's these terrible um, booklets of oh, these are all the books that you can order, and then you you know you write that in, and then the next week there's the book fair. So you walk in, and here's like all of these stacks of books and everything else, and you take your little wagon and you go pick up the books that your parents have already paid for via cash or money order, <laughs> and you go pick those things up, and then if you had some extra money, you can get something that maybe you didn't see in the booklet. Loved those. Um, but one thing I will say too is my mom and my dad were, listen, I went to like a, a, a very Afrocentric, uh, preschool. Um, <laughs> shout out to Johnson's preschool. Like I learned about, I didn't learn about Christmas and stuff. I learned about the principles of Kwanzaa. I was a child, like two, three, learned <laughs> about the principles of Kwanzaa. Um, and so because of that, my books that I had were very black focused, black centered. So it's so funny. My parents were so intentional on making sure that I had things and toys and books that, that did reflect me. So one of my favorite books, hands down, I own the hard copy um, of the hardcover copy is Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. Um, and it, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to, you know, you know, tell all the stories, but it's an African tale. Y'all need to read it. Um, and what I loved about that is I don't have children right now myself. Um, but I, I'm a weirdo (laughs) in the sense of I've kind of been like planning for future children possibly. And I also am, I'm an aunt, so I buy a ton of stuff, right? For my nieces and my niece and my nephews or adopted nieces and nephews. Um, so, and I also really want a daughter one day. So I buy stuff like, this is not an ad, <laughs> but I also buy stuff like this. So there's Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls and then Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. This is the Black Girl Magic Edition, okay? Because we gonna have, you know, some, some black girls loving all this stuff. And it's literally just... These like short little like and look at that. Marsha P. Johnson, one of the like premier transgender activists is in this book. You know what I mean? Um, I have this the president saying amazing grace because this is the only president my children are probably going to know about real talk. (laughs) You know, um, I have a bunch of of children's books um, there. I have hair love. I have. What is that book with Lupita Nyong'o? Uh, Soul We. Um, there's there's just so Black Boy Joy. Like there's so many books that I think it's it's incredibly important for kids to be able to see. You know this kind of diversity. Um, what about you, G? What like did you have some some similar or no? Nah? <laughs> it's very interesting hearing your your childhood because it was very different from mine. It really just kind of hones in this this like this notion that you know it's 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 how it's it's about the home. It starts in the home, mm-hmm. and you know my parents didn't enforce uh, Afrocentric books. Maybe they didn't know where to find them. Maybe they didn't just they didn't look. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if I want children yet, but I do know that as a as an uncle and as a godfather, um, and if I was to be a father, I would want to make sure that my children or the children in my life have access to those kinds of kinds of books because mm-hmm. as a black queer boy it just it kind of just reminded me how um there was so much lacking like if i saw a marsha p johnson and 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 i saw like queer men and 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 my children's books like imagine what that would mean to me when as i'm trying to figure out my identity mm-hmm. um it, it's just really really super important you know and i think that um you know, 
like how you lead, how you choose to lead in your home, uh, it sets up your child or not for the sometimes for the rest of their lives. You know, exposure is everything. Absolutely, G. And, you know, of course, we definitely need to speak to a pretty much an expert in children's literature and media today. So I'm super excited for our guest. Jesse Bird is the founder of Jesse B. Creative, a publishing house focused on diverse children's literature. He's an award-winning author who has won children's literary awards in the U.S., and internationally, and he also serves as the creative director for You Wish, a creative production company that prides itself in creating inclusive media content that allows all families to see themselves in stories as the hero. Jesse, welcome to Dear Culture. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, welcome, Jesse. We're really happy to have you. I think you know this is a really important conversation because, th- as they say, the children are the future. Um, but Shauna mentioned something in the intro that you know you specialize in diverse children's books. And I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to specialize in diverse content? And why did you choose to make this the focus of your publishing house? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, You know, children's picture books, uh, film, animation, video games, these are really the first reflections kids get to see of themselves. Um, I call them first stories. And so who's making that content and what they're getting, what they're seeing reflected back of them is really, really important. Um, and so what's happening in the industry right now is over 50 percent of children's picture books that feature a black character are not actually written or illustrated by a black author or illustrator. And so when you think about just that one microcosm of blackness um, amongst the spectrum of diversity, what you have is quite a few people telling stories about what it's like to have this lived experience. that just haven't had the chance to be in these shoes. And so owning our narratives from from top to bottom, giving a more authentic reflection of that. And, and then uh, broadening the scope as well um, is really important for why I wanted to do this specific genre and do it this specific way. So I want us to make sure that we're like actually digging into some numbers, right? So we're not talking about hypotheticals when we're talking about racial diversity in media and particularly in children's books. So the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Cooperative Children's Book Center has been tracking statistics on children's books representation since 1985. And they recently reported that racial diversity in children's books has been increasing since 2014, say, over the last six years, after what the center calls a 25-year plateau in seeing an increase in racial diversity in children's lit. But when you look at the publishing industry, so publicists, marketing teams, agents, editors, booksellers, and even teachers and librarians who get the books into children's hands, they significantly lack diversity. Uh, Lee and Lowe Books did a study in 2019 that found that 76% of the publishing industry was white with the biggest gap in diversity on the editorial side, where 85% of employees were white in the U.S. So I guess... Even though society seems to be, you know, centering diversity, equity and inclusion and specifically trying to amplify black voices, you know, especially now more than they did, say, two years ago. Why do you think we still aren't seeing more of an increase in like the publishing side in particular um, and overall, like I, just in black storytelling and diversity more broadly in general? I think you hit it on the head directly. The stakeholders are still of largely of the old guard, right? And so when it comes to us being excited about a story that we feel like will really, really resonate with our community, have a positive reflection, have importance, meaning, stickiness, um, we still have to then, as as a black male in publishing, I work on both sides of the fence. I do 
have my company, but I also operate in traditional publishing as well. I still have to convince somebody largely outside of my experience of the worth and value of the story or the script that I'm pitching. And so as, as long as there's still that dynamic where we have to connect the dots and we have to hope that somebody approves and sees the worth and what we're trying to do, then there's always going to be this, this, this spectrum of stories that don't make it through that narrow window of somebody else seeing value in it, green lighting it, putting it in the production calendar and going on from there. And so I, I do think that's why it's important to have your own sort of ownership and playground. This is definitely something I learned from uh, my mom, who's a New York Times bestselling author. So I grew up in the industry learning from her about the business. Um, it's definitely something I learned from my mom about how she would always have her own publishing company on the side, just in case, even after she was a New York Times bestselling author, she would still pitch her publisher some things and they'd be like, no, we don't want that. And so she's like, well, you're not going to stop me from serving the community just because you don't want to be a part of this journey. And so you kind of have your own home to play with, your own wheelhouse to test content, develop IP and go from there. And I think that that's super important. It runs in the family. I love it. That's that's amazing. Uh, but also, Jesse, in 2020, there was a report that 26.8% of children's books were written by authors of color, which is a extremely low number. And obviously, there are a lot of writers out there who want to break into the industry um, and they want to tell more diverse stories. What advice would you give to those writers, those authors, those storytellers of color who are interested in publishing children's books? I would say, well, number one, one of the biggest things is own, own your own learning curve. Um, we're fortunate to grow up in a time in a space where there's so much information. Um, writing like anything else, storytelling is a craft, like you know, spend your time learning how to be better with the fundamentals, studying other people in your genre to figure out how they're handling story plots, inciting incidents, rising action, set up some payoffs, all of that jam. And then second, which was something that I learned along the journey that was really helpful for me, is that if you feel like you have something worthwhile to share, even if you feel like it's only going to help a small amount of people or connect with a small amount of people, then you almost have to be dogged about the fact that you are going to get this work to market the best way you can with what you know at the current time and the resources that you have. So, I mean, in my first book, my first children's book, I was working at Google at the time and I was I didn't want to start a publishing company back then. I was like 22, 23 at the time. I just wanted to sell a manuscript and keep working my day job. Um, but um, after 150 rejections from agents and publishers, um, I had to really reassess. Is it the product or is it, you know, the, the structure, the, the industry mm -hmm. or is it both? Um, but I knew I wanted to test it. So I decided to go ahead and self-publish that book put it out there. And that same book that was rejected over 150 times was, you know, won awards in Paris and Los Angeles is like one of the top five children's picture books of that year for those particular awards. And so I say all that to say is that you really do have to believe in the value of your storytelling as a service, because I do think it's a service um, ultimately. And and if you do, then you can't, you cannot allow sort of the, the, the narrow focus of, of any gatekeepers to stop you from sharing what you have to share. And I think that's like so profound. So uh, Jaren and I, you know, were having a conversation kind of earlier on before uh, we were joined by you. Um, and he said something that I found really profound of, um, I'm, I'm actually, 
I <laughs> so I'm weird and I collect children's books for my future children that I possibly maybe one day will have. Um, and one of these, you know, again, this is not Ned. Uh, one of these is, uh, you know, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. And they just did like a Black Girl Magic edition. And one thing in there was um, there's an entry in there about Marsha P. Johnson, a, you know, transgender activist, uh, like icon. Um, and I always find it interesting, right? Because there are so many people who believe that we're trying to like indoctrinate children <laughs> for things that are kind of out of the norm. Um, but I I think it's so important, uh, you know, to have kids be able to see like transgender pro- protagonists, like their children are identifying as trans younger and younger. You know, there are um, really anywhere on the LGBT spectrum. I think there's opportunity to, uh, you know, share experiences in terms of maybe you have a disability or something like that. Like I've, I've, I've very rarely see these kinds of books. I guess my question to you would be, how do we find these? <laughs> like, I know they have to be somewhere. How do we come across them? I mean, sadly, a lot of them are still on the fringes. I mean, anytime you talk about a big business or industry like publishing, they're always going to be risk averse, right? They're always going to be thinking about how can we guard against risk, which means that what's the plus minus on putting out something that may polarize or ostracize a certain part of our demographic. So we could do a book that um, that, that speaks to one particular experience. But if this group over here, some of our book buying audience really has a conflict with that, are we going to be courageous enough? To, to, to find a way to still bring that story to light, which is which is why I'm so happy that, um, you know, thanks to technology and the time that we're living in, this wasn't the case even just 15 years ago in the publishing industry. You know, people can go direct to market. They can get proof of concept. You don't you don't necessarily have to wait for somebody else to get it. And so that's what I'm passionate about with with. Um, my publishing company, Jesse B. Creative, is that if there are stories from lived experiences that I feel like could benefit kids just from having some exposure to them, I will literally go to certain stakeholders and people who I feel like may be interested in that type of thing. And we'll make a story together. You don't have to have previous writing experience. I will literally sit with you. We'll talk about sort of what you want to say and how you want to say it. And I don't even mind operating as a ghostwriter because I think the value of having that authentic lived experience out there is beneficial. And I know for a fact that it's going to be a slow drip if you're wait- if we're waiting for it to come from the top down. We have to prove that these stories can resonate. And once you prove they can resonate and sell at that point, then then all the publishers want to want to do it. Once the once the numbers are there, then it, then it won't be easy, won't be hard at all to get more of these stories, uh, which is kind of what we're seeing um, in the surgence of of black stories right now. And Jesse, I've noticed that children's books, especially of diverse ones, um, are more prevalent now than when I was a kid. I think in the past 20 years, the market has changed so much. Um, There is starting to be some variety that's growing out of uh, the publishing industry. What do you think is personally is missing right now from the market? What I think is missing is kind of the same things that that we that we deal with in other verticals like like film um, and and any other form of storytelling, which is uh, just the whole slice of life, the whole spectrum of life. Um, Unfortunately, when it comes to children's books specifically, I can't think of really any and I'm not saying that there aren't any, but I can't think of any top of mind of recurring black lead characters in a children's picture book series. So, for example, you have Madeline, you have Clifford the Big Red Dog, you have Curious George. They've had books that have come out over decades, seeing them in different situations 
over time. I can't think of a single black character for a children's picture book that has had 10, 20 years of carryover where we just plop them into different situations and you get to see them across the spectrum. I think that's a huge, huge issue with the perception of blackness and, 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 and diverse groups in general, because no one person is just one thing. And if you only get to see a snapshot, a photograph, essentially, of that character's life, then you don't get to see how maybe they'll handle approaching a big game or tests or transitioning to a new school or making a new friend or losing an old friend. All of these are very human situations. And if we want to see reflections of humanity, we need to show the whole bit of it. And I think right now we're just not getting that chance to have that robust exposure where you get to see just different slices of life on, um, on diverse characters. And I think that's something that's needed. So I'm glad that you actually touched upon that because I mean, historically, right? Like, so now, nowadays we've had really great characters and not even necessarily like children's books, but you know, we've had uh black Panther. You've seen Doc McStuffins, which I love, you know, my, my niece did not know that doctors could be black until Doc McStuffins, you know, <laughs> like those type of things. Uh, you know, we've had uh, one of my favorite video games, the Spider-Man Miles Morales, you know, the, all of these different characters, but again, historically, we've seen a lot of black characters, um, especially in animation, especially in children's books, be more so sidekicks or they're like turned into animals <laughs> for some reason. So think of Princess and the Frog. Tiana, she 95 percent of the movie, she's a frog. You know, there's their soul. He's this uh, Jamie Foxx's character is just this tiny, this little blob, just trying to figure out how he could get back into his body. Um, I guess with you working at a media studio, at a media studio right now as a creative director. Why do you think this is a trend that we continue to see across like children's media? And I guess, how do we move past this? Like, how do we see more black and brown protagonists that stay black and brown protagonists? Well, I, I think, uh, and that's, that's such a, such a great and important observation. One of the biggest things is that, um, as we've talked about just in publishing, but also in multimedia is that at some point of the creative development process, Typically, you are going to run into somebody who doesn't have that lived experience, who has to sign off on this for it to get greenlit or who has to have creative input in it for it to happen. Um, and because of that, you, you run into barriers in creative development that you wouldn't otherwise have if it was all inclusive, if the community was building it from top to bottom, if we didn't have to go to finance to grab this or to the animation studio or to the distribution platform for this approval. And so I do think part of it is, of course, having more people of that experience inside the room. But a lot of it goes to gatekeepers. At some point, you're going to ride that elevator high enough where you um, where you need a point of approval. And if that person doesn't see it the same way you see it, well, who's going to get their way? You know, who's actually going to get their way here? Um, one of the, probably the most iconic examples is Static Shock. When um, he had his animated series um, on TV back in the day, I used to love it. It was the first time I had seen a black character centered like that um, as, as a superhero who was cool and like his dad was cool. And it was really, really cool until, you know, the creators of Static Shock wanted to do something. That, that the parent company didn't agree with and they had a tug of war and static shock went away. So, so these are the types of things that are happening on a micro level. It's not always that um, extreme in terms of like the show gets, gets shut down or the movie gets shut down, but it, it is to the point where like whose ideas are actually going to be the ones that survive and last and become the final. 
Um, and I think because of that, you do see, uh, you know, black people sort of transformed or spending most of the screen time as not black. Um, and, and, and I do think that's largely a function of who's in the room, but also who's, who's green lighting what and who has the power. You know, I think too, I kind of want to understand, I guess moving forward as you know, where there's those of us who we are not writers, we're not publishers, right? But we're just consumers. How do we, I guess, help contribute to you guys um, to to make it a little bit easier to to make the the keepers of the old guard kind of kick rocks like what what do we have to do as consumers to you know make sure that we are helping you all who are trying to make this more diverse and representative uh, landscape in the publishing community especially as it relates to our children um, how do we get how do we help you guys get to that level how do we help you guys get there yeah, that, that's an excellent call out. Um, and, and simply put, just with everything, the, the argument is easier for us to make as stakeholders and creatives and business owners when, when we have the numbers behind us, when we have the, the sales, the amplification, the following, the, the newsletter subscription bases. When we can go with the data, um, even companies who aren't necessarily passionate about being a part of our mission, they may not necessarily care about the, the why behind why we do it, but they see the financial gain in it. They see the, the reach in it. Um, then, then we can have the argument on that base. So that gives us a really good footing and platform to stand on. And then the second thing um, is if you're ever in a picture book store looking at a picture book online and and you're sort of looking through it. Sometimes they'll have photos of the authors in the back and the illustrator in the back or on the inside of uh, book flat jacket, dust jacket. Um, if they don't have that and it is a book that features a marginalized community, then what I highly recommend, and I'm sorry that this is an extra step right now, but I can't think of a shorter workaround. Just do a quick Google search of the author illustrator, just who they are, like a, li- a little bit about them. Um, because I think what helps a lot is when we are buying uh, authentic own voices is what we call it in publishing. You know, when somebody of that experience creates that particular bit of content, but there are a lot of things out there. What publishers will do, and I'm trying to give away a, a trade secret, but what publishers will do when they know that they have a black book that's not written by black people is they won't show the author's photos sometimes. And so you'll pick it up and be like, oh, this is beautiful. And it is beautiful. It's beautifully illustrated. It's real, real cool. Then you look them up and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Is he selling me this <laughs> about Keisha, Keisha's new new do? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. But the, but like by the numbers, this, what's what's troublesome about that is that if this particular author outside of the experience then has a really really well selling black book, they're gonna get to do a sequel. They're gonna get to do more black books, which also limits the already small number of seats at the table for black creators. So it's now it's like. They're telling their stories and our stories, and we can't even get paid to tell our own stories because they're making best-selling books, um, basically, you know, showcasing our experience. So I think, uh, you know, that's that's the two things. I mean, if wow. you can support with following, if you can support with um, purchases, that's great. Um, if you can buy from minority and Black-owned publishing houses, that's also great. And then also just like doing that quick bit of research. Right there in the bookstore, quick Google search will pull them up for you. And then you make sure that you're buying um, authentically diverse books, which is different than diverse books. That kind of blows my mind. I guess it makes sense. Not all black media is owned by black people. Shout out to the Gria, which is black owned. But I never, (laughs) I actually never thought about that, Jesse, about like seeing a children's book that might be black center or even have a black 
protagonist, but not be owned, whether it's the illustrator or whether it's the writer. Um, you know, should we be like protesting uh, these type of books that are not like black owned? Uh, or are there publishers, uh, obviously your own, uh, but are there publishers that we should be uh, supporting specifically? Yeah, in terms of like resources and, and where to go, there's a, um, an organization called We Need Diverse Books. Um, and they have a website, we need diversebooks.org. And they do a really, really good job of sort of sifting through doing some of the legwork for, for folks. So, I mean, as a consumer, you shouldn't have to do all of that lifting. You should just be able to go somewhere that has already curated what you feel like you care about and what you want to support. And that way you can just buy with confidence. And so I would say, um, you know, as opposed to maybe trying to figure out if all of these independent publishing houses are really operating um, authentically and with purity, uh, you know, you, you want to try to find places like that that do the fact checking for you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, trying to earlier you mentioned the CCBC out of Wisconsin, uh, you know, their diversity metrics for the publishing industry is something that a lot of us rely on as, as a pulse check to see, you know, how things are going. Because otherwise, how would you know? How would I, as a author, editor, publisher in Oakland or L.A. now, know really what's happening industry-wide in terms of the metrics of literary agents and editors and things like that. Um, I'm represented by one of the few of, that I know, like prominent black literary agencies in the business, uh, Serendipity Lit and Regina Brooks, who's just a, a, a titan in the space. But I mean, it's not like there's 10 Reginas that I know of. There's really only like one, maybe two Reginas who have been doing this for a while and really have the chops and a lot of you know, awards and like have carved her path. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of opportunity, but those spaces will kind of curate where you can find things that help rather than hurt, support things that help rather than hurt the actual cause. Absolutely. And last question for you, Jesse, and uh, without sharing too much, because I'm not sure if you're like in some deals or not, but what's, what do you have upcoming on the horizon? Um, and also just looking forward, like what do you want to see um, from the industry moving forward? Yeah, from the industry moving forward, what I would love to see is more models where the entire developmental and funding process is insular. And then we are licensing IP out to the major platforms like Netflix, like Amazon, like Hulu. Um, but they're not owning and they're not getting to say how this piece of content looks. And in terms of sort of what I'm working on to your first question. Um, so right now working on about two to three uh, animated features and specials, um, you know, featuring sort of you know, diverse talent, diverse cast uh, about five to seven books coming out in the next 12 months and then working on five to seven acquisitions. So for the companies I'm working with, we're looking to acquire products and talents, picture books, scripts, things like that from marginalized communities. So we are trying to bring them under the fold as well, get them the amplification and support that they need. And so one hand washes the other. You have a lot going on, actually. That's, that sounds like a lot. That's really awesome. I'm really proud of you. I to see a black man out here doing it. Um, yes. I definitely am Booked happy and busy. to see it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but first, also tell our audience, for those who are listening, where they can find you. Yeah. So if you're interested in supporting any of the books from our publishing house, um, we would love to have your support. You can go to jessebcreative.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-B as in boy, creative.com. We're on Instagram at the same, at jessebcreative. Uh, we'll also, we don't only share our own stuff. We also share, especially on the Instagram there's a lot of artists we come across that we're just fans of that do amazing work. And so we'll always be sharing new illustrators with you, new picture books, new authors, 
um, that that we feel could use some amplification too because they're doing they're doing some great stuff. So um, yeah, that that's where you can that's where you can find it. Jesse. Well, thank you so much for joining us today here on Dear Culture. And if you want to learn more about the work of Jesse B. Creative, as he said. Go to his social media platforms at Jesse B. Creative. That's J-E-S-S-E, the letter B, and creative. Or by visiting jessebcreative.com and youwish.com. That's letter U, not U, Y-O-U, but U, W-I-S-H, co.com. And as always, for more commentary on the culture, visit The Grio's website at www.thegrio.com. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Sankofa. Sankofa Video Books and Cafe specializes in videos and books about people of African descent around the world. Founded in 1998 by filmmaking couple Hallie and Sharikiana Jarima, Sankofa was named for the Andinkra term for going back to our past to go forward. Sankofa's brick-and-mortar building is located in Washington, D.C., across from Howard University's campus. Their online store ships nationally. To learn more about Sankofa, visit their website at www.events.sankofa.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S dot S-A-N-K-O-F-A dot com. The Grio has published a list of 50-plus Black businesses to support during the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like your business to be featured, email us at info at thegrio.com. That's G-R-I-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and...